If you've experienced a DNA surprise, you know that your emotions can range from shock to denial to grief to anger to confusion to joy and around again. And sometimes it's hard to find people who understand this unique experience. Sometimes we feel a little stuck as we navigate this journey. That's why we created the DNA Surprise Retreat. At the DNA Surprise Retreat, you'll enjoy six expert-led sessions to help you process your DNA surprise. You'll eat delicious catered meals, and most importantly, you'll build beautiful friendships with people who understand you, all in a stunning private ranch facility in the Arizona desert. If you've had shocking DNA test results, know that you're not alone. This retreat is for you. Join us September 19th through the 22nd, 2024 in Phoenix, Arizona. Registration is open now. Reserve your space at dnasurpriseretreat.com. I'll see you there. And so the parent tells that child early, it just becomes part of their narrative and it's not a big deal. You don't have to have a sit down and a time to tell. There's never a good time to tell. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I mean, we do encourage people to make it part of their child's birth story. Um, you know, I have three children. I tell my children on their birthdays, the birth story, they've heard it. You know, all their lives, every birthday, they get to hear their birth story. And if it's just incorporated into your um, natural way of things, it's not a big deal. If somebody has waited, there's never a good time to tell. It's time to tell now. Imagine spinning into a tube, sending off your DNA, and unknowingly turning your life upside down. For me and thousands of others, this is our reality. I'm your host, Alexis Auerselt. In July of 2021, I discovered that I am an NPE, someone who has experienced a non-paternal event. In other words, my biological father isn't who I thought he was. This podcast shares the journeys of people who were shocked by a DNA discovery, mostly through modern DNA testing. We're telling the stories of NPEs, adoptees, and donor-conceived people and their families. This is DNA Surprises. Welcome to a bonus episode of DNA Surprises. I had the privilege of speaking with Kara and Alicia from Right to Know about all of the amazing work they do for the MPE, DCP, and adoptee communities. They also shared some exciting news about their upcoming Untangling Our Roots Summit. The event is scheduled for March 30th through April 1st, and tickets are on sale now. I'll be there for the podcasters meet and greet, as well as participating in a panel alongside the amazing Eve Sturgis from Everything's Relative and the incomparable Lily Wood of NPE Stories. I'm also looking forward to attending some sessions on boundary setting and ethnicity shifts from DNA Surprises. What's more, Debbie from the DNA Surprise Network and co-founder of the DNA Surprise Retreat is also attending. We hope you'll come hang out with us. You can register for the Untangling Our Roots Summit at untanglingourroots.org. 
I'm so excited to be joined by Alicia Weiss, Chief Experience Officer and Secretary of Right to Know, and Kara Rubenstein Dayeren, CEO or Chief Executive Officer of Right to Know. Right to Know's purpose is to advance their fundamental human right to know our genetic identity through education, mental health initiatives, and advocacy. They support people impacted by DNA surprises and misattributed parentage experiences, or MPE, which can occur due to an adoption, assisted conception, or those conceived from a non-paternal event, NPE, as well as those searching for genetic family and promote understanding of the complex intersection of genetic information, identity, and family dynamics. Thank you both for being here today. Thanks for having us. Thank you so much. Let's start off with how you came to understand misattributed parentage. You both have DNA surprises in your past. Can you share a little bit about those? Well, this is Alicia, so everybody knows out there. My story started in 2014 when I took a over-the-counter DNA test and uh, was surprised with the fact that I was uh, over 50% Jewish and absolutely had no idea about that. And after a four-year search, I was able to locate the my biological father. That I had a misattributed parentage. And, um, this, you know, it was just, it was quite a story for me, obviously, as anybody out there knows about these shocking discoveries. In my circumstance, I'm what they call an NPE, non-paternal event or not parent expected, uh, where my mother had an affair and she was married at the time. And the man that she had the affair with, uh, ended up being my biological father. Mm. And I, I had my discovery about four years after Alicia in 2018, just a couple of days before my 44th birthday. Um, I had purchased an Ancestry.com test for myself and uh, the man on my birth certificate because I wanted to take my three boys to a Finding Your Roots tour of Africa. And when I got my results back, I was 50% something, but there was zero African DNA. And I look back on it now and I think, oh, how silly was I to even think I would have 50% African DNA? Because, you know, when you're African-American in the United States, you're not 50% something if you're half black. You have bits of different African national ethnicities like Cameroonian and Bantu and things like that. Um, so I too discovered that I was half Jewish. Um, it's was a, it didn't take me nearly as long to find and identify my genetic family as it did Alicia, but, um, it did take a while. And I remember thinking I was in purgatory during that whole time, you know, that stranger in the mirror, my, my idea of who I was, the context of me being a biracial person was gone and I had no idea who I was. And I, I really couldn't start that healing process until I had identified my family. And I was lucky I had a match that facilitated that for me. Unfortunately, my uh, genetic family did reject me. And uh, part of my raising family also uh, rejected me after they found out we weren't related. Mm. Thank you both for sharing that. How did you come together to start Right to Know? Uh, that's a great question. We get we get answer. We get asked that question a lot, Alexis. And both of us, we found uh, each other through um, a community, a social media community, and began a friendship because of the fact we lived in the same area. 
Uh, we both obviously were hurting over our circumstances. I was further on in my discovery, as Cara had mentioned, I've known, you know, since 2014. And it took me four years to find my biological family. So, boy, the, that was awful. I'll just tell you, the four years of dealing with that, just it left in me a piece of my heart was just continually every day. I just felt like it was just cut, being cut in half, trying to just search and search and search. And when I finally found my biological uh, father, I realized before that, that I wanted to help other people dealing with this. So Car and I sort of, in, we're, going, we're going on this path together uh, and we decided that we wanted to talk more about it and, and Car wanted to help me and I wanted to help her. And we, we began thinking a lot about forming a, a nonprofit together. Cara tells the story a lot about how we met through a uh, interview we did on, uh, was it CBS? Cara? Yeah, we met, we did an interview with the local CBS station with Alicia and I, and then uh, Gregory, who was donor conceived, learned he was donor conceived from an over the counter DNA test and David who he knew he was adopted, but he grew up not knowing his ethnicity. And so we did this interview on CBS and then we had dinner together afterwards. And we were talking about the fact that there really wasn't an organization out there that could advocate for us, for our mental health, for our right to know, for um, our, our, you know, helping us find our identity. So within a couple of months, we had created Right to Know in September, three years in September. Yeah. It's hard to believe, huh? Wow. Time goes by quick. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I'm so, well, I know when I had my DNA discovery, I found right to know almost right away. And you all gave me the language for what had happened because I'd never heard of an NPE or MPE, not parent expected. I mean, none of that you know, was known to me. And then finding your website was such an amazing resource. Can you speak to how you support people experiencing DNA surprises? I'll start out, this is Cara, by saying that we really focus on three areas, um, mental health, education, and advocacy work. Um, And I'll back up just a little bit with the terminology, because I feel like even when my husband talks to me about his work, I'm always like, what are those, you know, what are you talking about? What do those terms mean? Because <laughs> <Yes. laughs> I think yes. each group has those. So we did decide to use the term misattributed parentage experience because we want to be very inclusive at Right to Know. And we feel like these um, DNA surprises are happening to three communities. They're happening to the donor conceived community, the adoption community, and to the NPE community, either non-paternal event or not parent expected. Most of the time for NPE, it's people who find out that the father that raised them or who they thought was their father isn't their father. And we wanted to be sure that we were including everyone in how, uh, in helping people. And so, um, Misattributed parentage is a term that uh, genetic counselors and health professionals have used for a number of decades, actually. We, we didn't reinvent the wheel here, <laughs> but um, mm-hmm. so that's that's where those term, the terms come from. And I, I'll go ahead and let Alicia talk about what we do for mental health. So one thing that's been, was always on my heart, even way before we had a nonprofit, was a way to, um, when I would speak with people about the circumstances surrounding an, an MPE that we spoke in a way that was honoring that person where they were at. And I'm a retired RN registered nurse. Um, and I spent a lot of time thinking about this. What, what is the help that's needed? So we put together a support 
that included various ways for folks to get a hold of us, which one of them is a hotline. And then we have a system where people can actually email in to us uh, if they need assistance. This is all on our Right to Know webpage also. We have found that it was really important when people reached out that we were able to like re just reach them exactly where they were at. We would get folks that would in that indicated to us they had not found their biological either father mother you know either both and that they need assistance in the that that part part of their uh story uh just to find the, that parent or they needed help with the whole thing where they were looking for a therapist but one of the things that was missing uh was the fact that there was needed to be a middle something in the middle when people could not they weren't ready or they couldn't afford a, a professional therapist we looked at that and we thought well what do, why don't we set up a mentor program and after we got that started i couldn't i could not believe the amount of people that were really that was what they were seeking for and that became a big part of the work that we do is we have a mentor program it's kind of crazy how many people say wow my mentor understands me better than my therapist or my mentor is more helpful than my therapist mm. And one of the things that really has developed, we did a study last year of more than 600 participants, and 38% said they had seen a therapist, but a huge vast majority said those therapists didn't have the training they needed to help them. So we got certified to offer continuing education courses to therapists. And this kind of delves into the education side of things. We look at our educational goals to help therapists be able to help us. So we offer four classes for therapists right now. We're working on a couple more where they can uh, come and learn about the issues that impact someone with misattributed parentage so they can better help us. We also have classes for people who have misattributed parentage, like what is a centimorgan and <laughs> what are these matches and how do I read this? That kind of thing. Uh, I've been working on a name change class for a while that I haven't finished, but I'm hoping to get it up there soon. And then we also have just information for the general public. We need to increase awareness for the public about what this can mean. I and mean, it's not traumatic for everybody who has a DNA surprise, but for some of us, it can be. And, and you know, how to be sensitive if you know somebody. I, I kind of look at, you know, the six degrees of separation with Kevin Bacon. I think with an MPE, mm -hmm. it's more like two degrees. I'm sure you've experienced this where after you have your discovery, like my, my mother-in-law, they had a, a, a niece reach out. It turns out her, um, her mother's sister had a child and that was sent away for adoption. My neighbor came up to me and said, I have a sister I never knew about. Um, so it's amazing to me after yeah. you have an MPE discovery, kind of how much you see this, it's kind of like, you see it in the media everywhere too. You know, you start thinking about Kung Fu Panda and Star Wars and all the different uh, times. <laughs> yeah. yes. It's almost like you can't get away from this. Every time you turn around, it's like somebody in your life, and it has this happened to them. And it's like, there it is again, how important it is that we have a way to talk to people about this and deal with these circumstances. I, I will say people always say, how many people are there out there? And there aren't, perfect studies. There aren't perfect data. On our website, I have source where the data I'm about to tell you comes from. But we think one in 20 people have misattributed parentage. That means that more than 16 million Americans are walking around with incorrect medical history, incorrect family history. You know, um, So I think increasing awareness about this issue, the fact that over-the-counter DNA 
testing has shifted the needle uh, about yeah. secrecy in families. Uh, and we need to make sure people have the support they need out there when they're having these discoveries. Absolutely. Kind of going off of that, are you all seeing a, a sharp increase in the number of people contacting you for support? Because, yes. you know, more and more people are <laughs> taking ancestry tests and 23andMe and everything. You're right. That number has gone up so much. I don't know if we said this earlier, but we are one of the resources for Ancestry.com. So if somebody gets a surprise on the Ancestry website, which is, you know, where a majority of the tests are done besides 23andMe, uh, we're and, and they have a surprise, they're going to end up contact probably contacting us. And so that is, you're right, it has definitely increased. And we've seen it on our hotline, we've seen it through emails we get, and, and we're also seeing international emails that we're getting from people like wanting to wanting help or assistance with coping with their new, their surprise or identifying genetic family. Because yeah. really, mm -hmm. I mean, it's so hard to heal without knowing who you are. Um, there's plenty of people out there who are uh, on that hard road, but we definitely want to try to help people identify family. You know, and everything we do is free. Obviously, I think also one thing that stops people from reaching out is shame. And I think, you know, the shame of their conception, the shame of not knowing, like, why didn't I know this or realize this, the shame for their mother, if they're the product of an affair. And I hope we can try to um, help people work through that and, and help them with what they need to move more on a path of healing. Secrets fester. Yeah, I mean, yeah. just off of what Cara said, I I, obviously I've known a really long time now since 2014 and it's easy for me to say this, but I'd like to normalize what we're dealing with. Mm -hmm. If we could normalize this and make people realize there's nothing to be afraid of. There's nothing to be ashamed about. I'll give you another example of a call. I actually received a call on off the hotline and this ended up being of multifamily members involved, but the call came from somebody that uh, was needing help with the DNA site. And it ended up, they found out that their, their uncle was actually their biological father. And so the kids then became not only cousins, but, you know, half siblings. And this was such a shock to the other side, the, the uncle's children. And they were, they were having the shame factor play into it. Like, I can't believe that my parents would, this would ever be, I can't, my father was the perfect father. And you know, these kind of things happen and you have to bring it back and, and take it a step backward a little bit and realize, well, our parents were not superhuman, that we all mm -hmm. were just, we're humans. We, you know, we, we have our frailties. We have our areas that we are not, we, I mean, I don't ever want to call this a mistake. I don't think any of us are a mistake, but that things happen. Life, life happens. Life is messy. It's very messy. <laughs> but and our goal is definitely that no one ever feel alone in this process. And so even if someone just calls the hotline, just to have someone listen to them. Um, I don't know about you, but I totally felt like, oh my gosh, I'm the only one that this could happen oh, yeah. to. <laughs> oh, yeah. And so when people call the hotline, is there somebody there that will answer or do they leave a message? How do they get in touch with you? 
with you and your support system? There's two ways on our website. You can, some people don't, it's even too much to call. So there's a a button on the website where you can ask for help and we will reach out to them either via email or a phone call, however they request, or if they call the hotline, we try to answer it. Some, you know, these are all volunteers who staff our hotline who've had an MPE. So sometimes people leave a message. Sometimes the call is answered directly. We try to call back within 24 hours Sometimes people are are needing help. If anyone's in crisis, we ask that they call 911 for help because we want to ensure we're we're not mental health providers. We're there to to listen um, and and refer uh, to mental. We do have a directory of therapists that we refer people to. And if someone's not on the directory, we will find them. Sometimes we spend weeks looking for a mental health person who has experience helping them in their state, you know, plus we deal with insurance. I mean, we don't take, we don't deal with it, but we try to find a therapist that has the insurance the person needs. It can be quite a process, which is why the mentors are, can be so helpful in the interim. Yeah, that's great. And I mean, I will say, Right to Know, I think, has the most comprehensive resource list um, that I found and have definitely used it myself. Um, there's links to identify therapists in your state and just tons and tons of great information. So thank you for all the work that you've done to pull that together. I want to talk a little bit about the advocacy work that you do. What kinds of things do you work toward so that we all have the right to know our genetic identity? I mean, that's ultimately the goal, right? It is a fundamental human right to know your genetic identity, full stop. And and I say that knowing that that's a very complicated thing to say, Um, (laughs) because we all come from unique situations. Um, We advocate for telling people about their unique conception from birth. The mental health field has definitely shown it's in the best interest and mental health of the child to know that they are not genetically related to one or both of their parents. Um, If you grew up without genetic mirroring, you have some genetic bewilderment, you don't understand why you're different. Whereas if it's normalized as a child, you're okay. So how do we do that through advocacy work? I ultimately uh, feel that we need birth certificate reform in the United States. I believe that birth certificates should have uh, space for genetic mother and genetic father, and then lines for the number of parents who are legally responsible for the child. Um, And that way, nobody would ever grow up without access to their genetic identity. That's a long haul goal. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. if we want to chat in 15 years, I hope we're there. Um, Right now, we've been really working on an issue that is um, important to me. When I, after my discovery, I wanted to change my birth certificate. And I was looking at Washington State's laws. And the Uniform Parentage Act is the most up to date. Like, so in Washington, we updated our Uniform Parentage Act. When I was reading it, trying to figure out how to change my birth certificate. I'm a non-practicing attorney. Um, I noticed that it said donor conceived people can never um, put their genetic parent on their birth certificate, even if they wanted to. Um, Mm. And I thought that was wrong. It puts them in a second class citizenship. And so we started working with Tracy Portugal here, who does the website Donor Deceived, who found out that her Uh, genetic father was her mother's fertility doctor to try to introduce fertility fraud legislation in Washington. 
And since then, we've branched out into five states. And we're very excited that last week, the governor of Iowa signed our bill into law, codifying broad-based fertility fraud, making it a crime if the donor lies about his information. Most people don't understand the fertility industry is highly unregulated and um, there's no checks or balances. And everyone's like, oh, it's like a dating app. Yes, that's true. The people scroll, scroll and choose the gamete provider. Um, but there's no, when you, when you go to a dating app, you're going to meet that person, right? And you're going right. to know if they're telling the truth about their PhD or their medical history. Eventually you get to interview them almost when you see them for the date. So, um, and if the picture's real and all that stuff, whereas, uh, there's no requirement for truth in, um, the fertility industry. So, um, the law in Iowa makes it a crime uh, for any type of fraud in the fertility process, including doctors that use their own gametes without permission of their patient. They actually made it a sex crime. Texas is the only other state in the United States that has done that. So we're really excited to move the needle forward in that area. That's amazing work. And I did not know that about donor-conceived people not being able to list their genetic parent on their birth certificate. No. And, you know, like I said, Washington is the most progressive. In Washington state, you have the right, if you were born after the bill was enacted, it took effect, which was 2020. Um, So we're talking about people who are two years old right now. But (laughs) um, (laughs) when they turn 18, they have the right to know their genetic identity in Washington state. Colorado, with the help of the U.S. Donor Conceived Council, just enacted a bill that starting in 2025, people who are the offspring born 2025 or thereafter in Colorado from uh, gamete provision will have the right to know their genetic identity when they turn 18. And, you know, and eventually we need to see federal legislation on this. And we're really excited to hopefully start working in that arena. Yeah, I I think the birth certificate conversation is just so interesting because it's something that really comes up. And I've had guests on the show that have been very emotional about the fact that their birth certificate isn't accurate. And I think that's just amazing work. Let's check in in 15 years, like you said. (laughs) I mean, the problem with birth certificates, what most people don't understand is what is a birth certificate for in the law? A birth certificate in the law is who's responsible for a child. It has nothing to do with genealogy. But from a societal perspective, you know, I my great-great-grandkids are going to get that assignment in elementary school, right, where they make their family mm-hmm. tree. And um, I want them to be able to see their rich Jewish history. I have some very fascinating um, relatives now in my family tree, and I'd love for them to be able to do the research and have the documentation for that. But then on the flip side of that, you know, my African heritage from growing up influenced me greatly. And so I really would like to be able to see a way that we can have both of those things on our birth certificate, that it's not an either or choice where you're choosing between maybe the man who raised you, uh, even though my birth certificate father didn't raise me, or um, your genetic father, we shouldn't have to choose those things. What is something that people maybe don't realize about the MPE experience? It's been interesting to me since it's been so long for us, but, and I always thought, oh, I'm going to figure this out, tie it in a bow and put it in the closet and I'm done. I I, I solved my MPE. 
Um, yeah. <laughs> and I've realized that's just never going to be the case. There are certain things that come up that can be triggering for people about their MPE. And I've had that happen to me when I'm least expecting it. So this is something that we will carry with us. It gets easier over time. Alicia and I, after talking with hundreds of people about this, three years is what we see. It takes about three years to fully feel like you've righted your ship and you're back on course a little bit. Everybody's different. Um, but that three yeah, years, is you know, one, one thing I wanted to say, like when somebody goes into like say therapy or something, you know, everybody's trauma, they have to define that for themselves. Alexis, I mean, what you go through is going to be different than what I go through. And so when you determine what is it that you need to go through? You're, you're just, you begin to find yourself again in that stage. You're kind of connecting with yourself. A therapist may help you with that. And then that person also, we got to find out where they're at. What is it they understand about their situation? Some people are just really just, they're blown away. They don't know what to think of any of it. Others come to us completely. I mean, they really get it. They know what's going on, but they are sometimes in worse shape than the one that's just, you know, like, I don't really understand any of this, but I think I do. And so it's building those skills up. And then when you realize they're finding out where they're at and they're, if they're angry or whatever's going on and they're, and they're, and they're really clearly traumatized. Um, it, when we start helping people, we start poking through and trying to find ways to where healing can start from the trauma and, uh, you know, that is, uh, it's a tough, it's a tough road to go. We talk about this all the time. How many years does it really take for us to finally feel normal? For us, we, we feel like it's three years. And you think about that 365 days times three, that's over a thousand days of when you finally find this out. And I don't even think that is, you know, where you just finally are feeling like, okay, I can wake up and not be thinking about it constantly. So that's probably what I'm saying when I say three years. It's a constant ache in the heart. Well, and not everybody is traumatized from the, their discovery. And we all react to these things differently. The number one word in all of our um, talking to people and in our surveys that we've done is shock. I mean, that's the number one mm-hmm. word that people use to describe uh, their DNA surprise. Yeah, but every you're right. Everyone's experience is so different. And some people don't don't feel traumatized. I think a lot of the people that come into the support groups that we see and um the people that I've talked to for the podcast, their experiences generally seem to fall along the trauma line, but not everyone is like that. I've talked to some people who have a lot of, you know, compassion for their parents and understand why they made the choices they made and seem to be pretty well adjusted. So yeah. yeah, it's true. The experience is very different for everyone. Both of you had an ethnic shift as a result of your DNA surprise. And I, as you know, I did too. Um, what resources do you have for people that have had that component to their DNA discovery? We do have two private Facebook groups that get to this where the, where we can talk about those ethnic shifts. Because when you, when you find yourself part of a new culture that you don't have the cultural experiences or the words to use because you didn't grow up in that culture, sometimes you have questions that are uncomfortable. You don't mean anything in a fashion, but they might be interpreted in a certain way if somebody didn't know the context. So we have a private Facebook group. Um, where people can come and talk about some of these issues and and questions, concerns, 
um, amazements, whatever it is that they want to talk about <laughs> with their ethnicity shift. We also have one for Jewish identity as well. I will say for me, I mean, you have imposter syndrome is a big issue. I think when you have an um, ethnicity shift, I think imposter syndrome is a big issue for some people because you now have this culture that you don't have the language, the lived experience, the foods, you know, the history with, but you're curious about and you want to know more about maybe. And um, you may be even look like you belong in there. I know for me, the first time I went to temple, if I didn't open my mouth, everyone thought I belonged. But as soon as I started talking, it was clear that um, I didn't have those, those that lived experience to take with me. So what I always say to people, if you have an ethnicity shift, make sure you have people you can talk to, like in our private Facebook groups. But what you need to do is start building some of that li lived experience in that culture little by little, whatever that means for you. Maybe it's just starting to watch some movies associated with that culture. That's an, a thing that you can do on your own and gain some confidence. Read some books by authors from that culture. Um, you can do some language studies. We have some amazing webinars that we've done throughout the rest of the year. We have webinars once a month on different topics. And we did one about language, things that you can do to start learning your new culture's language. Um, and then when you get more comfortable, you can head outside and start to meet people from that culture and start to create lived experience. So you start to build some of those things that you may feel you missed out on in your childhood. Um, all of our webinars are available on our uh, education site, mpe-education. And there's some great ones out there. The language one, we have one talking about these ethnicity shifts um, that's fabulous. It's actually one of my favorite ones. The therapy directory that we created was actually created because largely made up, you know, we're, the psychotherapists were uh, those that, that did, we needed people that could deal with some of the issues you just mentioned. And we actually have people of color that are therapists in our directory. And when we are specifically asked for those kind of uh, people that need help, we're, we try to get folks to the right people to talk to because I think more than anything, you know, we just want to make sure the resources are out there for people uh, and they have a place to go. Oh, that's amazing. And and yes, Cara, all the things that you, you mentioned, the imposter syndrome and, and ways to connect. I mean, those are definitely things that I've experienced and I'm sure other people that have had an ethnicity change through uh, DNA Surprise can can relate to. So thank you for speaking to that. It's so scary, Alexis, because I know for me, I really wanted to learn more about my Jewish identity, but because my um, genetic family rejected me, I didn't have that avenue. And so we need to take baby steps until we're ready to take bigger steps. And I now have built a beautiful Jewish community for myself. And um, I really encourage people to start small and work their way out in their comfort zone, um, whatever it may be, whatever they may have discovered about themselves in their, in, their, in their new ethnicity or new identity from their DNA surprise. Now, you all have a summit coming up next year. Can you share about that? Yay! I'm so excited. <laughs> we are very excited about that. Oh, my gosh. There's so much to say about it. We, we're, we have been working on that. I don't know. It's probably been almost a year in the thought processes and then several months of getting that off the ground. We are partnering with NAP, which is an adoptee organization out of Indiana and um, have plans for early, I guess, spring, end of March, early April. And uh, we'll be pr putting out more announcements about that. 
but we we've called it untangling our roots is the is the title of it and we do have a website for that what is the website again car untanglingourroots.org untanglingourroots.org yes the social media handle associated it with it is summit roots 2023 the summit will be march 30th we're going to meet in the evening for registration and entertainment we have some fabulous things in the work for entertainment it should be a lot of fun and then we'll get up bright and early the next morning on the 31st for a full day of, of speakers and panelists there'll be various tracks lots to choose from we will have a recording so if you want to go to two you can you can get the recording <laughs> so you can watch it and then the same again the next day we're really excited to announce that uh, our keynote speaker is going one of our keynote speakers is going to be paul franzak um, and if you don't know about his his story, you should definitely um, look him up. If you look up Franzak Foundling online, you can find his story. He's going to be an amazing speaker, and we're really excited to have him. Tickets are going on sale shortly, and we're really excited about that. We're going to have an early bird special and then um, a standard ticket price. So uh, when we announce tickets for sale, Get them while you can because we're going to have a limited number at a discounted price. Yeah, that it's I I am excited about it. We didn't mention the city yet, but the city is going to be in Louisville, Kentucky, and it's going to be exciting because I wanted to pick something in the middle of the country. And when we got together with NAP, we were thinking about where this would be a great place where people could hopefully drive to. It would not be a you know that not everybody would have to fly to it we are we live in seattle washington so it's a flight for us yes. <laughs> to get there but we've got friends on the ground in the area and um it, it's just exciting we we have a lot of good things planned yeah there's going to be some great panel discussions like the commodification of our conception um genetic mothers on a panel genetic fathers on a panel we'll have a therapy track where we can meet and talk with therapists. There's just going to be so much there. It's going to be such a great event to connect, to learn. And the whole goal of the summit is to unite our three communities with an amplified voice to increase awareness about genetic identity. That's so amazing. So we will definitely include links to purchase tickets and to the summit and right to know and everything in the show notes. But for listeners, can you go through how they can best connect with Right to Know? We have uh, various ways to connect with us. Obviously, we have our webpage, righttoknow.us. And on there is our, our we have a, areas where we have our, our toll-free number and then our, um, our also just how they can connect if they need help. Um, and that the email is there on our webpage. We have our Facebook pages too that we had brought up the social media, Instagram. Uh, we're on Twitter. Uh, we have very robust groups on Facebook. One is called MPE Life, Misattributed Parentage Experience Life. That has been an absolutely fabulous group that in is inclusive for all three of our communities. We've got the Cross Culture Connections. Uh, we have a Jewish group and uh, we can add, you know, we have you add all that uh, in your notes for folks to go to. Is there, am I missing? Yeah, we missing also have a, we have a, a Facebook support group for family of uh, people with an MPE. So like genetic moms, raising moms, siblings, uh, we found they are wanting their own space to um, support each other in the process. So we have that as well. 
Um, our social media handle is right to know us. And that's for Twitter, TikTok, Facebook, Instagram. <laughs> um, all of the social. Yeah. yeah, all the social. We have the same handle, which makes it easy. And then um, our to- our uh, hotline number is 323-TALK-MPE. And so that's how people can reach out to us. And our email is info at right to know us. And um, I don't know if you want to put this in when I was talking about Paul, but Paul Franzak's website is Foundling Paul. Um, and I encourage people to see or read about his story. It's a, it's a very interesting story. Great. So I know Right to Know is a nonprofit. Are you a 501c3? Right to Know is a 501c3. Everything we do is based on donation. We encourage people to donate. I like to tell Alicia, if everyone would just donate $5 a month, (laughs) if you've had an MPE and you sign up to donate $5 a month, we would love that or $10 a month. Um, that That would enable us to provide the services, to continue to provide the services that we provide for free. You know, we can have... Uh, five outreaches in a week. And sometimes we can have 30 outreaches in a week. And all of those people are looking for someone to coordinate these services for them, meaning finding them a mentor, finding them a therapist, helping finding them a search angel. We like to follow up to make sure their needs are being met. You know, finding the therapist can take time, um, you know, and everything we do is based on volunteers, but things do uh, have expenses, insurance, websites, um, you know, all sorts of things like that, um, that people don't really think about. So yes, please, we encourage you to donate to Right to Know. And are you currently seeking volunteers for anything? We are seeking volunteers. We're always seeking volunteers. If you'd like to volunteer as a mentor, uh, please reach out to us. Uh, we do trainings for mentors periodically, and there should be one coming up relatively soon. Right to Know was founded on the principle that it's a fundamental human right to know your genetic identity. And through that, we do mental health initiatives, education, and advocacy. And we work with other partners and organizations and groups, but we only work with other groups that promote inclusivity, engagement, and our community's well-being, as well as our right to know our genetic identity. There's so many different avenues to healing, and I think we need all these different support groups and organizations out there for each other. And I encourage people, when people reach out to us, we encourage them to check out all the different support groups that are out there, all the different organizations. There is not a one-size-fits-all answer to a, a DNA surprise, but at the same time, we need to be inclusive. We need to engage with each other and promote the healing process within our communities. Well said. So these are these are two questions I always ask everyone, and one of them you've already answered a lot, but it's all right. We're going to jump in. What advice would you offer a parent who may be keeping an MPE from their child? We've thought a lot about this. As I said, we're in the process of creating a class for therapists to help their clients tell their children about their unique conception. And there can, while it's hard sometimes when you've had a DNA surprise yourself, to realize there are times when um, it can be very difficult for the truth to come out for physical safety, financial well-being, meaning like maybe a, a mother, their significant other would leave them and they would have no support for their child in the in the current circumstances. Or maybe they're in a situation where there might be violence or retribution 
for having the MPE disclosed at that time. We always encourage disclosure regarding an MPE before the child can create a memory. And we actually have a uh, sheet on the mpecounseling.org. It's also on our righttoknow.us website on how to talk to your child about being donor-conceived. And we have one that should be finished shortly on how to tell your child they're adopted. And we're in the process of working on one to how to tell your child that they had an NPE. Um, we encourage children, or we encourage parents to tell, but we also understand there are times when telling may not be the right choice, and we have to respect that. Uh, however, when a child reaches adulthood, even though we all know it's in the in the best interest of the child to know earlier, for reasons that I just said, sometimes people cannot disclose, but when that child does reach adulthood, they do have a fundamental right to know their genetic identity. We have uh, support. We actually have people who call our hotline. Uh, mothers will say, um, I heard you on the radio or I, I read an interview with you all and I want to tell my child they're donor conceived. I want to tell my child that the father that raised them isn't their father. And we do have mentors we can connect them with. We do have therapists we can connect them with to try to help and make that transition and that telling an experience uh, that will come will be as successful as possible. Yeah, I mean, this I I like how Cara just you know defined our stance because as we truly are, we believe that with all our heart. However, it is an uphill battle when we have conversations with people and say to them, "This is what." we believe in what is what we believe is right and when you're talking about again with emotions especially a mother who perhaps is um you know had an egg donated and she carried the, the baby to term um it's becomes a very complicated and difficult situation so we try to stay very sensitive to whatever circumstances that come our way but we're never going to waver about how we feel about that, about the right to know. I know right to know is all about resources and advice and support for people who have experienced misattributed parentage. But what advice might you offer to someone who is fresh, who just found out? Well, I know Cara and I th think about this a lot. And for me, as a nurse, I have to always think about any anxiety or stress that somebody has that they just need to take a moment, sit down, breathe, and let themselves just sort of calm down. Because sometimes, and I will tell you just for me, I was about to pass out when I initially found out. I was literally, my heart rate had went up to about 200. And I mean, that was, you know, I'm not in the in that moment with that person when they're going through that. But when that first phone call comes in, you know, that person has, is all over the, the place with their thoughts um, and where they're at. You know, we just want to help them get to the point where they can, they know they have us there for them and uh, we can listen for them. It is the most craziest experience when you realize you've had your DNA surprise. And some people like, I, we were talking to a gentleman, he had taken his DNA test four years before and it took him four years when he opened it and he was like, oh, you know? Yeah, so, yeah. Um, it's not always when you first get your results That's that true. you understand that Very what true. those results mean. But when you do get to that point, 
I don't think we could say it enough. You need to go slow. You need to go slow. You should not be making any big decisions. Um, you need time to heal and process. Your brain is in fight or flight, and you need to move yourself out of that. And that's not an instantaneous thing. You can't just take a deep breath and everything is better. You need to take a deep breath today and tomorrow and the next day and figure out how to move forward for you. And that takes time. The biggest advice I think that uh, Alicia and I can give is to go slow and to focus on you. Um, I know for a lot of people and myself included, I take care of everyone else. I'm constantly running around doing for my family, for others. My DNA surprise was the first time in my life where I really had to say, I can't do this alone. I need help and I need to focus on my needs in order for me to be the best mother the best spouse, the best friend, and it takes time. I want to leave it with this with a quote that um, I read. And I think this speaks a lot to those of us that have gone through this experience. Um, as traumatized children, we always dreamed that someone would come and save us. We never dreamed that it would, in fact, be ourselves as adults. And I, that just speaks to me because, I, I mean, we have to we go through our own circumstances and it's, we have to help ourselves sometimes and whatever that takes. Yeah. yeah. Sometimes that's asking for help. <laughs> asking for right. help. Yes. Absolutely. Kara and Alicia, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today and for all of the work that Right to Know is doing to support DCPs, adoptees, and NPEs. Um, we all share so many similar experiences and the support and advocacy that you provide has helped so many people. So thank you. Well, thank you too, Alexis, for all the work that you're doing to spread the word. And we look forward to meeting and seeing everyone at Root Summit 2023 in March next year in yeah, Louisville. It's going to be exciting. Thanks again to Alicia and Kara for speaking with me. Again, if you're interested in registering for the Untangling Our Roots Summit, you can do so at untanglingourroots.org. And if you can do me a quick favor, please rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. I'll be back with a regular episode tomorrow. Until next time.